Well, again, good morning. Welcome. So glad that you are, are here with us, that you've chosen to, to worship in this place. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here at the Olathe Campus of Christ Community. It's, uh, it's great to be together. Uh, as we uh, begin to look at this incredible story, right, if you were listening to those words read, we're going to be talking about that uh, for the next half hour or so. But I wanted to begin by us listening to a song. Um, when, when I first heard this song, I was instantly drawn in. It's uh, the song Young and Beautiful uh, by Lana Del Rey. Uh, it's on the Great Gatsby soundtrack, if you're familiar with that movie. And that, that movie itself is so haunting, or that story, if you've read the, the classic work, right, about Gatsby, the self-made man who, who has everything. And he and his girl, Daisy, I mean, they're like the, the, the people to be admired, right? They've, they've got it all. Everybody loves them. Until the story progresses, and there's this lingering question all throughout, both in the song and in the film and in story, um, will it all last? And so Julie's going to sing a little bit of it for us. Let's listen. Those, those words, 
Um, I remember, again, when the first time I heard that song, it just it grabbed me right away, this, this, this longing. And, and, and since, it's kind of become one of our, our family favorites, even though it's dark and weird and kind of creepy. Um, and, in fact, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that my five-year-old daughter and I, we love to just sort of belt that song out together. Uh, she'll even come up to me as a joke, you know, and say, Daddy, will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? I mean, it's such a piercing question, isn't it? I mean, the song starts off, right? If you're listening, and, and everything's great. Everything that she could possibly have or desire, and yet that lingering question, will it all last? Will it? You know, what, what do I do when it's all gone? Uh, when, when I've got nothing left but my aching soul. And even that refrain, I know you will, I know you will, I know you will, will you? Okay, so I'm, I'm not really all that worried about losing my beautiful face, all right, just for the record. But I'm struck by her satisfaction on the one hand and doubt on the other. Both of those things, right, there together in that song, incredible satisfaction and yet piercing doubt because she knows one day it's all going to run out. And you see, like, like the song, I'm pretty satisfied with my life. You know, honestly, right? Things are, are good. They're, they're fine. And, but how long will it last? I mean, do you ever think about that, right? Worry about that? Like, you know, just kind of this fear that one of these days, the other shoe is just going to drop. Because many of us are happy, aren't we? Or at least happy-ish. Satisfied. Or, or at the very least, distracted. I mean, if you, if you think about it, right? Of all the people who live in our world... Or all the people who have ever lived in our world. Most of us have most everything going just fine, don't we? We're pretty satisfied, most of us. And, and sometimes Christians talk about a, a God-shaped hole. Maybe, maybe you've heard this, right? That there's, there's like a, a hole, a, a vacuum within each of us that, that only God can, can satisfy or fill. And I absolutely believe that. Trouble is, when things are going good, right, we fill that hole with just about anything else, which at least for a while seems to do the trick. And maybe if you're a Christian, maybe you'd love to try to answer the spiritual questions of your neighbors, but satisfied people aren't asking hard questions about faith. They're not really asking any questions about faith. How do you share Jesus with someone who seems to have it all together? And what does Jesus mean for those of us who do feel like we have it all together? Because one day it will all run out. I think we probably deep down know that. And the question uh, from the story that we heard read just a moment ago that, that sort of hits me in the face, a question I think for all of us, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, what, no matter what you believe, whether you're satisfied or not, what will you do when the wine runs out? What, what will you do when the party's over? When the satisfaction wanes? When you've got nothing left? When I've got nothing left but my aching soul? What will you do when the wine runs out? Now, for these eight weeks, we're, we're in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 2 this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, otherwise, we'll have some of it on the, the screen for us as we tell this 
story. But as, as we began last week in John, John has a very clear purpose in writing. Okay, he longs for his readers to believe. In fact, the, the word for believe appears 98 times in just 21 chapters of John. He wants the skeptic to believe. We talked about that last week. He wants the, the outcast and the religious and even the satisfied to believe. And in this story, we see that Jesus listens to questions we didn't even know we were asking and that he fulfills longings we didn't even know we had. And so as we, as we look at this, this ancient story, we're going to tell the story in kind of three sections. Uh, first, that, that everybody's thirsty. Second, everybody, or every, everything ends. And third, everyone wants more. Let, let me pray for us as we jump into this text. God, I am so thankful that you have spoken to us through your word and through the person of Jesus. God, because I know as I look at my life, my heart, I know how quickly I fill it up with all kinds of things that I think will satisfy, that I think will make me happy or make me feel like I'm a good person. God, I pray that in this moment, all of us together would know and believe that, yes, one day those things are going to run out. And God, I pray that we would see your solution for us here in this story. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's just, let's enter this story. And let me just say right out of the gate, okay, um, that this story, strange, isn't it? Water to wine? I mean, honestly, one of the reasons I believe this story actually happened is because nobody in their right mind would make this up, right? I mean, if you're trying to start a religion and have everybody follow this guy, Jesus, I mean, really, this is going to be his debut miracle? I mean, that's what it is. This is his first one. He's like brand new. Nobody knows who he is. And what does he do? Does he calm the storm or walk on water or heal the sick or raise the dead? No, he saves a party from running out of wine. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? And it's so easy, I think, for us in this culture to miss what's going on in that culture. Now, now last week, Jesus, he, he called his first disciples. So if you're here, we, we talked about that. He called Andrew and Peter and Philip and the skeptical Nathaniel. John is already there. Uh, and Jesus, he told Nathaniel, right, the skeptical one, he said, you are going to see incredible things. And then John tells us that on the third day, they went to a party. A wedding in Cana. And so I just kind of picture Jesus and his disciples there at the party. They're, they're having a good time. I, I hate this, but I can't get the image of them on a dance floor out of my head. Um, because that's what we think of, right? Having a good time at a party. They're doing the electric slide or something. That probably didn't happen. Uh, but they're there. They're enjoying themselves at some sort of uh, family gathering, family wedding. And Mary, Jesus' mom, comes over to him and says, uh, you know, Jesus, they're, they're out of wine. And again, we're like, well, okay. I mean, they've probably had enough if they've run out. Um, and I think they'll live, right? We just sort of dismiss it. It just seems so, so, so ridiculous. But in that culture, I mean, to blow it hospitality-wise was a big deal, okay? Uh, it would have meant a lot of shame on the bride and groom and their entire family uh, to allow a party that they were throwing to run out of something as important as wine. So it would have been a shame thing, but it's not like anybody's dying, right? And yet, Mary comes up to him. And I seriously doubt that Mary was expecting a miracle at this point. 
I mean, maybe, I guess, but I don't, I don't think so. Jesus hadn't shown that about him yet, right? She, she knew who he was. She had seen the angels, all that sort of thing earlier on. But I, my guess is she's, she's just going to Jesus as the man of the house. Most would believe that by this point, Joseph, Mary's husband, had died. And Jesus was the, the oldest male, right? And so he had just sort of stepped into that role. And so she comes, Jesus, throw out a wine. And he responds, woman. Again, we hear that and we think, woman, you know, get back in the kitchen, right? I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, okay? In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that it's not. Because words have different meanings in different contexts, different cultures, right? I think what Jesus is saying there, I mean, it would have been unusual for a son to address his mother in that way, even in that culture. Uh, but it wouldn't be unusual to, to address another woman in that way. I think what Jesus is doing, most would say that he's sort of uh, putting up a little bit of a polite distance between himself and Mary. That he's sort of saying to her, hey, remember, I'm more, than, I'm, I'm more than just your son. I think he's alluding to the fact that something, something big is about to happen as he begins this, this ministry of, of, of his leading up to his death. And then Jesus goes ahead and does it. Right? He says, nah, I can't, it's not my hour, right? It's not, it's not time. What does this have to do with me? Uh, and then he goes ahead and he turns a whole bunch of water into wine, actually about a thousand bottles worth, uh, if you're doing the math of the, the gallons of jars that they have. Don't you kind of wish Jesus would come to your parties, right? <laughs> now, here's the significance. Everybody's thirsty, but we don't often know it. I mean, very few people at this party realize that they're thirsty. They don't, they don't know that the wine's running out. Besides, there's plenty of water, right? We saw that in, in the story, right? These jars of, of purification full of gallons and gallons of water. There's a well nearby. There's plenty of water. Why does Jesus waste his time? Well, what's happening here is deeply symbolic. Jesus isn't merely saving a party from social embarrassment. He's revealing who he is. He's quenching a thirst that we didn't even know that we had. You see, wine in the Bible is almost always used as a symbol for flourishing, for joy, for life, sustenance. It was a a necessary commodity in in that day, right? It it was had much to do with God's provision and and all of that throughout the Bible. Some people think that the Bible is anti-wine. It's just the opposite, right? The Bible is anti-drunkenness, certainly. Um, But wine is seen as a picture of satisfaction, a picture of God's favor. But compare that in the story to the water in these jars, right? The, these jars of purification. It's plenty of water. For the Jewish rites of purification, of, of washing. Uh, the idea with these jars is that they would, they would use them to, to wash, to, to make themselves clean so that they would be acceptable for a social gathering in the presence of God, right? That's sort of how they, they did it. And we miss this, but scholars don't. By using those jars, which would have been used for that water, Jesus is changing the old order of things. Instead of law and ritual cleansing, Jesus comes with with grace and joy. Instead of something that sort of washes the outside of our bodies, Jesus provides something that sustains deep within us. It's subtle, but Jesus is saying there is a new way to be filled, a new way to be cleansed. Trouble is that people are already satisfied. I mean, they don't don't know how thirsty they are in that moment. 
And I feel like that describes me just about perfectly. Because you can, you can drink the, the cheap wine of whatever you think will satisfy you, right? Whatever you think will, will fill you up. And cheap wine is, is great for, for distraction, right? And you, and you know what it is, right, in your life? You know, you know what you're doing to, to fill yourself up. We all, we all have our lists, right? Money, sex, power, work, family, relationships, popularity, reputation, boyfriend, girlfriend. I mean, any of that, right? We, we use it as sort of the things that fill us up, that tell us that our lives matter. To distract us. Or you can go to the other extreme. Because you can, you can drink the water that's all over the place in this story, right? The, the water of the law, the water of religion. That's sort of the idea of just being a nice person, right? Uh, worrying about the outside, right? You want to make sure you look good, uh, that people think well of you, uh, that you've got your stuff all together, but not really actually caring about the inside. I mean, that's sort of the idea, right? That we, we love to do that. We can look down on others if we do that, right? Because we look great. We've got our stuff together. And everything looks good and fine, so something to just make us feel like we're okay, But either way, cheap wine or legalistic water, we don't know how thirsty we are. Because both both of those will satisfy for a moment, won't they? Both of those those will will make us feel like our lives are are fine, like they're important, like they're meaningful. But what will you do when the wine runs out? Because Jesus is saying here, I'm a satisfaction that you know nothing about. Better than cheap thrills, better than empty religion, And yet one of the reasons we miss this, one of the reasons I miss this, is because I just assume that life is always going to be good. Right? That I'm always going to be mostly happy, mostly satisfied. I just, I assume that my kids will always love me and my health will always be fine and my bank account will always have enough to cover my needs and I'll always like my job and like my family and like my friends that will all just live happily ever after, right? I make those assumptions about my life. I'm sure none of of you do, but I do at least. But the reality is, everything ends. Man, we we hate to admit it, don't we? Everything ends. Apart from Christ, everything ends. The party will end. The music will stop. Whatever it is I'm building my life on, if it's apart from Christ, it will crumble. The wine will run out, and all I'll be left with is my aching soul. Which even as I say that, it just sounds almost like a joke, right? Right? It just sounds so impossible right now. My life is good. I'm satisfied. I'm important. You know, everything matters and, and all that good stuff, right? The, it feels like the, the, the cheap wine of self-satisfaction. It feels like it'll never end. So let's try a little exercise. Somebody did this to me um, a little while back, and I'm still depressed. Uh, so you can, you can thank me later. Um, I can give you my email address. I'd love, I'd love a note. Um, but let's do a little, a little exercise. So, so how many here, show of hands, how many of you can name all of your great-grandparents? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, one, two, three, four. Yeah, maybe 10, 15% of us. Okay, hands down, that's good. That's, I mean, the minority, right? The, the overwhelming minority of us can do that. So that means, wait for it, um, if you're a grandparent, I see some of you out here, right? If you're a grandparent, you love those grandkids, don't you? You love them, and you're an awesome grandma or grandpa. You invest in those kids. You love those kids. I mean, you are a rock star at being a grandparent. But your grandkids' kids, 
they won't even know your name. They'll almost know nothing about you, as if you never even existed. You're welcome, right? (laughs) That's a haunting reality, isn't it? That's how quickly I will be forgotten. It's a few years. But Jesus is saying, I am a satisfaction you know nothing about. Something more. Because everything ends, right? The wine will run out. Our only hope for meaning is to find something that lasts. And so we try to do that in a lot of ways, don't we? We turn to all kinds of different things that we think are going are, are gonna to be worth giving our lives to. And so maybe it's work, right? And I, I love work, and we, we believe that work is an important part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Absolutely. And, but we think that it will sustain us forever, don't we? That, that it's everything. We give, our, we give our lives to it, some of us do. So how long will it satisfy you, you think? decade, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four, right? Depends on, on who you are and, and what you do. But we were designed to live forever. So what about 10,000 years? Will it last that long? Will it still satisfy them? What about your family? I, mean, I have little kids. They're going to grow up and they're going to leave. They don't think they will at this point. They keep telling us they're going to live in our house forever. But they're going to leave, right? And their kids' kids won't even know my name. Won't even know anything about me. What about stuff, right? We give our lives to stuff. Be honest, you're already bored with the last purchase you made, aren't you? It's already in the past. Or, or fun, or amusement, or, or leisure, right? But how long will those things satisfy us, or, or sex? But even, even that runs out eventually. So where will you turn? Mary turns to Jesus in the story, right? She goes to him. The servants in the story, they obey Jesus. The disciples believe in him. And, and actually, I love this. Some commentators actually say that, that when Jesus is, is doing this miracle, he's not just making the, the wine in the jars or the water in the jar full of wines, this, you know, thousand bottles worth or whatever, uh, that the language of draw some out actually implies that Jesus may have turned the entire well into wine, an endless supply of God's joy. If you think about it, Moses, right? The guy who sort of, you know, initiated the Old Testament law, sort of the, the hero of, of, of that era. Moses' first sign was to turn a river into blood, a curse. Jesus' first sign is to turn a well into wine, a blessing. This is not some insignificant party trick. Jesus is saying, I am doing something new. I am here. The one that you've been waiting for, the one that will fill you up, the one who provides an unending well of satisfaction and joy, I am here. He, he's saying that with this simple miracle. Everything ends but this. So why don't I turn to him? At least more often, why don't I? Why don't we? Because if we're we're that thirsty and his supply is never-ending, what's keeping us from going to him every time we feel like we need to be filled? Every time we feel like we need joy or laughter or sustenance or security or hope, why do I go to all these other things? I think it's because everybody wants more, right? We still want more, and we doubt that he could possibly be better, that he could possibly be worth it. I settle for the water of self-righteousness, or for the cheap wine of self-satisfaction, because I don't believe that Jesus could possibly be better. That what he offers couldn't possibly be better than that. 
go back to the story. Look what it says. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and, then, and when people have drunk freely, if you know what I mean, uh, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So if you're a wine drinker, imagine the best you've ever had, the taste, the smell, the color, and then multiply it by a thousand. Handmade by the Son of God. Instead, I, I go on settling for second best when this is what's offered to me. I, mean, I settle for anything, right? When this is what Jesus is, is bringing, what he is giving to us. We, we assume, don't we, that that illicit relationship uh, is better, that it's, that it's worth it, or your sexual addiction, or we assume that if I don't buy that, then I'll, I'll never be happy. If I don't achieve that, I don't make it to that promotion, if I don't have that house or, or whatever, I'm not pretty enough, liked enough, successful, or healthy enough. I'm so satisfied drinking swill when this is offered to me by the one who made me. And when those things run out, good things they may be, but when they run out or trials come, we so quickly believe that God's abandoned us, that he's just sort of forgotten us. Maybe it's actually a blessing when the cheap wine runs out. One of the things that I've built myself upon begin to crumble. Because maybe when there's nothing left to drink, maybe then I'll actually drink from him and see that he is who knew better, truly better. We all have expectations of Jesus. You don't have to, have to be a believer to have expectations on Jesus. We all have expectations of him and who he is and, and, and what he offers. And I'm guessing for most of us, your expectation is not, is not that Jesus is the kind of guy that would show up at a party fail with a truckload of the finest, right? It doesn't really fit into our, into our grid, but that's, that's what happens here. And listen, you may have faulty expectations of Jesus, wrong expectations of who he is, but your expectations can never be too high. They can never be too high. Because this isn't just some cute miracle that Jesus did way back when. You know, we read that sometimes in the Bible, and we think, well, good for them, right? They got to see it, they got to taste it, you know, and we're left here doing whatever. You know, we, we feel that, don't we? I feel that. But this, this is a miracle Jesus keeps doing. This joy, this satisfaction, this, this hope, it doesn't run out. It reminds me of a birthday card I got last year. Um, it's from my sister uh, and her husband. He is also a pastor, uh, so I apologize in advance for the clergy humor, um, but let me show it to you here, okay? Reverend, have you been drinking? Just water, officer. Next. Then why do I smell wine? Good Lord, he's done it again! Okay, that's not what I mean when I say that this miracle is available to each of us. Okay, got it? Okay, it's, it, that's not how it works. And yet, this life, this hope, this joy, this forgiveness, this redemption, this satisfaction, this something that actually runs deep within us to fill us up, not just on the outside, right, scrubbing us clean, but on the inside, giving us sustenance. This is available to all of us. It is better and it will never run out. And it's for you. So I want to end with a couple of 
next steps? A couple of simple things for, for all of us. This, this first one's for all. Uh, no matter what you believe, no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, um, for all of us, spend some time this week simply thinking through that main question. The one I, we keep asking, right? What will you do when the wine runs out? Set aside some time, maybe today, uh, maybe tomorrow morning, maybe sometime this week. Just think about that. What, what, what am I going to do? Do I actually believe that that's the tra- trajectory I'm on? Where, where will you turn? What, what are you filling yourself with now? What am I filling up with now? And what, will it really last? What do, what do I want to build my life on in five years, 20 years? And what do you need to do differently today as a result? Because my hope for myself, and certainly for all of you, is that I, would, I wouldn't wait till the other stuff runs out. But that now, today, I would drink deeply of this one who rescues me, this one who made me, who knows me better than I know myself. I, I, I want that for all of us. And for some of you, that means that maybe today would be the day or soon that you give your life to him. I mean, have you ever thought, if you're sort of resistant to, to faith, or may, maybe you just haven't quite gotten there yet, for whatever reason, there's, there's lots of good reasons, and we, we get that, and I'd love, to, I'd love to chat about any of those with you. Um, but if that's, if that's where you're at, could it be that your expectations of Jesus are just way too low? That you haven't actually taken him seriously, what, what he actually offers to us? I mean, I've been haunted by this question this week. I really have. I mean, in, in our office, we've, we've asked each other multiple times, right? When, this question, because it's, it's so piercing to me, and it, it, in some ways it terrifies me, because I know my shortcomings, and yet it gives me hope as well. So ask yourself, what will you do when the wine runs out? And the other next step, uh, this one's primarily for the Christians, okay? So if you're not a Christian, you can, you know, check this one off your list already. Um, you don't have any, any more homework. But if you're a Christian, ask yourself, because I need to reflect on this. And I see this coming out of the story here. Ask yourself, how do I taste to the people around me? How do I taste? To everyone, but especially to those who don't believe. Because throughout this series, right, we're taking these eight weeks in John to see how Jesus interacts with those outside of faith. And we long to be a people who share Jesus and the way that he shares himself, right? We're we're trying to follow that, that pattern, his model. And for many of us, living in Johnson County, this means sharing Jesus with satisfied people, doesn't it? For the most part, at least, at least on the outside. So what do satisfied people need most? I think they need a better taste. Something better than, than what they're already building it upon. And we who, we who know Christ, who have tasted of, we have drunk deeply of a well that never runs out of his joy and satisfaction and, and a hope that, that we have found that, and we have this well, right? I mean, Christians, we ought to be the most joyful, most satisfied, most hopeful, most flavorful people on the planet, shouldn't we? And yet some of us taste lousy, don't we? And you know what I'm talking about. Maybe, maybe you see that even in yourself. Maybe you, you know, I mean, we all know people around us. We probably don't necessarily want to think it's us. Um, that taste lousy, Right? Either we're so grumpy with, or, or judgmental or self-righteous or just always right all the time, right? Which really just means that you're still just chugging back the water of religion, right? Of self-righteousness, self-satisfaction. You, you keep your nose clean, but God hasn't done anything in here. That's a scary place because everything looks good about your life. And yet you might be far from him. People who have truly tasted of Jesus, 
They can't taste that bad. Or we go to the other extreme, and I think that's maybe where more of us here would be. It's probably where I would lean. That we're just so consumed with finding ultimate satisfaction the same place everybody else goes. Same things. Keeping up with the Joneses. Having the perfect family, the, the, the best career, the biggest house, right? Having all the things right and beautiful and good in our lives left with nothing but our aching soul. And we're content just trying to get plastered on cheap wine when this is offered to us. If you have tasted of Christ, you cannot taste that bad. Our lives should be like fine wine, handcrafted by the Savior himself. How do you taste? And maybe there's somebody in your life that you could actually ask that question to. Maybe there's even a a non-believer that you could go up to and say, I'm a Christian, how do I taste? Give them a little context, maybe, first. Um, (laughs) Chances are they probably think you're weird enough already, so give a little context, but ask, right? Find out. And find ways to bring that same kind of joy and celebration into their life that Jesus has brought into yours. For example, Christians, we we ought to throw the best parties. We have the best laughs, the biggest smiles. How can you give people a better taste? One idea, maybe just have some people over this week. No agenda, just love them, right? Maybe for dinner. In fact, we're going to post a a blog uh, later on this week, just five tips for hosting dinner with friends. Just to get to know people. To bring that joy and celebration that Jesus so clearly offers to us. Friends, how do we taste? And is the taste we're offering actually worth tasting. Okay, so believe me, this is a strange miracle, right? Any way you slice it. But I'm so glad it's where Jesus starts. I mean, it always kind of surprises me, right? Every time I read the Gospel of John, you get there, and it's like chapter two, and it's like, really, this is it? This is, the, this is the debut, huh? Interesting choice. But I love it. Because it's Jesus foreshadowing the joy that is offered to each of us. But, but don't forget, that joy would come at a really high cost, and Jesus knows it. I mean, it's even there in the story. Maybe, maybe you heard it read. What, what does Jesus say? Mary asks you know, him to do something about the wine problem, and Jesus' response, he says, my hour has not yet come. And every time that phrase is used in the Gospel of John, it's pointing to the crucifixion. I'm convinced that that's what Jesus had on his mind at that party and, and what he was doing, and he knew what it would cost that the cost of our joy would be his sorrow. The cost of our healing would be his suffering. The cost of our forgiveness would be his shame. The cost of our life would be his death. That this eternal wine of joy and satisfaction would cost him his blood poured out for us. What will you do when the wine runs out? That's a question for all of us to wrestle with, and yet at the same time, if you know Christ, if you've given your life to him through faith, and it will never run out. That it is, it is offered to us in abundance and forever. 